would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Tonight we're going to be looking once again at Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. And you'll remember last time we looked at this area, uh, I talked about the importance of spiritual warfare, the reality of spiritual warfare, the fact that uh, we are enmeshed, whether or not we recognize it, in spiritual warfare. And uh, that we need, therefore, these weapons. If we did not realize we had serious spiritual foes, then there would be no need for these items that God has given unto us. Now, one thing I need to say about this, uh, I hope you'll be able to say briefly. Um, it is often the case that when a strong analogy is made within Scripture between you know, one thing in the material world pointing to something in the spiritual world, that we tend to get too caught up with the material thing. That becomes our focus. I remember hearing many years ago uh, a sermon on the image of the vineyard both in the Old Testament and the New Testament as, uh, a, um, as a metaphor for God's people, God's covenant people. And it was fascinating. Uh, but at the end, I felt like I knew more about Israelite horticulture than I did about the spiritual realities and the eschatological facts that uh, those images were supposed to uh, illustrate. It is possible to preach on this, uh, this particular section and come away knowing a lot more about the Roman army than you do about um, the spiritual warfare that Paul is pointing to. So I'm going to try my hardest not to, to let my historical uh, horses get their head and uh, end up nattering on about warfare. Uh, rather, I, I want us to be recognizing that these things were meant to be illustrations of spiritual facts, of, of uh, spiritual importance to the Christian. Anyway, all that said, let's get, uh, let's get to prayer and ask the Lord to help us. God, our Father, in your word, you tell us to pray continually again and again. And one of the things that we need to pray for is that we would be moved, that we would be changed, that we would be affected by the means of grace that the means of grace would be effective within us, that, Lord, we would hear your word and it would produce that, that harvest that you desire. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to be focused, that you would allow me to speak aright, uh, that, oh, Lord, you would overcome my weakness. And, Lord, I pray that I would simply decrease and Christ would increase. But I pray, uh, moreover, that your people would understand how important these things that Paul had to tell us are to their sanctification, how much we here right now need to hear this. This is armor that we, as we just sang, need to be putting on each day with prayer. Help us, therefore, to do exactly that. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, I'll be reading 10 through 18. And I remind you, this is the word of the Lord, inerrant, inspired, and true in all it teaches. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all 
the saints. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In America, it's sometimes referred to as your full battle rattle. In Britain, it is your complete kit. But in ancient Greece and Rome, it was referred to as the panoplia, or simply panoply in the English. That is the arms and armor of a Greek hoplite or a Roman soldier. Everything that he was expected to be wearing and carrying before he went into battle. This was something, obviously, that Paul uses because the people in the ancient world would have been very, very familiar with Roman legionaries and centurions. They would have seen them in their cities and their towns and also auxiliary forces. Uh, And being in Rome now, Paul was seeing Roman guards and Roman troops all over the place. But he wants them to understand that they, too, just as the Roman soldier needed to be armored and ready for combat, they, too, needed to be armored and ready for a combat that was eternal. Roman soldiers fought in wars and rebellions, many, but the Christian was constantly engaged. There is no end to the war that we are part of until Christ comes back. And so he tells them to put on Christ. Christ is your only hope of victory in this particular war. And put on the new man in him. You are a new creation. So as a new creation and as a soldier of God, put on the Lord and the armor that he gives you. Put on the whole armor of God. Don't leave out a single piece. He wanted to make sure that there was no opening for the devil to strike at, no opening in the head, the feet, the heart, the belly, the ear, the eye, the tongue, nothing by which he could tempt or get uh, a wound in on the Christian. We remember that the true Christian can never be, of course, damned by the devil, but he can, of course, be wounded by the devil, and he can be tempted, he can be brought down. The devil loves to cause Christians, for instance, to despair, One of his great aims is to make you all put an end to yourself, as Bunyan put it in the uh, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, or to get to the point where you become so disgusted and disengaged or disheartened that you leave off the means of grace, that you give up attending church, and that you become effectively, well, I guess the word would be combat ineffective in the Lord's army. The panoply that uh, he lays out there for all these parts of armor, they note that they are both defensive and offensive. Most of the things that he's going to be talking about are defensive, but these are good weapons. They are good uh, defenses against the, the evil one. In fact, they are the only ones that uh, will work. The quality of these arms is decisive in the battle, and the training of the men who use them will also be equally decisive. It's often said that uh, in an army, you need quality more than quantity. Alexander's army, for instance, was victorious against inconceivably larger Persian armies because his men were better trained, better equipped, and better commanded. And the same was true, of course, with Cortez. He was able to take a few hundred Spaniards and overcome the entire Aztec army because his men were so much better prepared, trained, and armored than those Aztec warriors that were coming against them. Their uh, obsidian weapons, for instance, did very little when it came to a breastplate made of steel in Spain. Paul is telling us that we, too, can be victorious. We will be victorious in the name of the Lord if we have on our armor, if we wield the sword that he has given us, if we take seriously the battle that we are engaged in. 
Paul teaches that everything pertaining to this battle that we're engaged in is supernatural. Therefore, we need supernatural weapons and armor. He says in verse 10, first of all, be strong in the Lord in the vigor that we gain from him, all the energy, all of the grace, all of the, uh, the kinetic motion that we are enabled to perform in the name of the Lord comes from him. We need strength uh, to carry these things out, and the Lord will provide us with that strength. It took strength just to carry the armor of a Roman legionary, and we will have that strength only if we are in the Lord. It is only as we are members of Christ's body that we have life, that we have power, that we have the ability to fight in his name. If Christ lives in us, then we have a strength that is not our own. If you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, trust me, Christian, you have a power source of inconceivable strength within you, something that the unbeliever knows nothing of. And we live with that paradox, don't we? I feel it every day these days. When we are weak, we are strong because of the Lord's working within us. We, the more we empty ourselves of self, the more we depend upon God, the more we are full of him, the stronger we are. And this is something that Paul encourages us in. We, uh, regardless of how strong we are, though, an army of strong men who are naked is not going to be much good on the battlefield. doesn't matter how pumped up we are. Uh, So what shall we wear when we go into battle? Well, that is a good question. There are things, of course, that we could do, we could wear that won't help us. There are, these are the things of men's devising. There are so many things that men have determined will aid them in the spiritual battle that they are set upon that don't actually help at all. Uh, for instance, the monastic urge, seclusion from the world, let's all become monks or nuns, retreat to a building together, and there we will be able to withstand the wiles of the devil, not considering that we have brought him with us. The world, the flesh, and the devil do well within the monastery as well. And that also emphasizes flight rather than conflict. It emphasizes the Christian running away and hiding from the enemy rather than engaging with him directly. I love the Amish for so many things, and I I have great... um, respect for what the Anabaptists endured during the, uh, the Reformation. However, the tendency to want to separate from the world entirely and go off and form your own community as much as it pulls on my heart as well. I wish, I wish I could form, you know, a, uh, a reformed little country. We could have our reformed language and we could, you know, live according to the Bible. That was the desire to a certain extent of the pilgrims, but that desire to flee from the world takes us out of the battle. You are not here simply to defend yourself. You are to fight for the Lord. You are to be going forward in his name. You are to be establishing his kingdom wherever you stand. Then, of course, there are the ascetic things, the things that we say, I won't do this. This thing, it is not forbidden in scripture, but I will not do it and and it will make me better. I will not eat things. Uh, I will not... I will not drink things. I'll go through ritual observances. I'll, I'll invoke the saints and the angels. I'll wear little medals and medallions and crosses and, and things like that. Or I'll practice celibacy as if that will help me in the spiritual fight. Or I will divest myself of all of my worldly goods. These were the things that people the, have put in the place of the panoply, the armor that God has given. They have gotten rid of those things that God has said will help them. Uh, or are indifferent, and sometimes they have actually uh, put themselves in greater peril. For instance, those 
who are actually enabled to live the celibate life, the single life, are very few in this world. And so to take a vow of celibacy when you cannot maintain that vow is very dangerous. It does not help you in the spiritual conflict. It actually weakens you. Now, in Paul's time, they they did that kind of thing as well. He writes in Colossians 2.18, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. They won't help. In the modern world, in the evangelical church, even Protestants have gotten into this. We think of nuns and monks and so on, but today there are equally uh, large numbers of Protestant Christians who wear amulets, who practice weird rituals like grave soaking. Uh, Bethel Church is, if you don't know what that is, good, I'm glad. Um, or they anoint themselves with holy oil. I was staggered. I went to, uh, when we went to Jerusalem uh, and up to Judea and then we visited the Jordan River, they had the, the, the holy knickknack shop just outside of uh, the, the river area where baptisms take place. And the place was chock full, I mean stocked to the brim with various holy oils. And it wasn't just Catholics and Eastern Orthodox people who were buying them, it was evangelical Americans who were loading up on their holy oil. Uh, That and things like speaking in tongues, buying books on prayer languages, holy diets, wear this, don't wear that, and so on. Protestants these days fall prey to that just as much as medieval Catholics did, or people in Paul's age. None of these things though are effective when it comes to fighting against the devil, fighting in spiritual warfare. In fact, the devil probably laughs himself silly as we're covering ourselves with holy oil and waving amulets about. Instead, we must put on the armor of God, which is furnished by God, not by us. It can't be bought in a store. It is something that only he can give. It is not our own. If it was ours, it wouldn't stand. If it was merely material, then it would be of no value. It is spiritual, therefore it is mighty in God. It is not carnal, it is spiritual. Note uh, that Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. He does not say create the whole armor of God. You do not make it yourself. You take it up, you don't make it up. You put it on as he gives it to you. It is not uh, rather like that embarrassing situation that occurred in the uh, war, well, embarrassing and deadly situation that occurred in the war in Iraq early on when uh, American troops found that their Humvees were woefully uh, inadequate for firefights and IEDs and things like that because they had no armor. So they ended up having to fish through, it was a ridiculous situation, Iraqi dumps looking for bits and pieces of of metal that they could weld onto the side of their, their Humvees. The Lord doesn't leave you in that kind of situation where you try desperately to find bits and pieces of of discarded steel in order to make up your own armor. The armor that he gives you is effective. It is perfect for what it was designed for. This armor is offensive and defensive because it will not do for us only to be on the defensive, brothers and sisters. I can't, I can't say this enough. We have to be a people who are on the offensive, who are engaging the enemy actively. Nobody won a war simply by being on the defense all the time. Eventually, 
Eventually, you have to move on to the offensive. You have to take the field. We must endeavor to advance and subdue as well as to resist. Also, we need to be actively engaging so that we might deliver those who have been taken captive by the enemy, who are under the oppression of the devil, who are fighting for him and that side. I mean, I was once in the enemy's camp. I was part of his army until the Lord, by the sword of the Spirit, delivered me from that terrible bondage. Remember that as well. Now, we are told, above all, to maintain our ground, not to yield, not to run away, not to throw down our arms and, and speed off the, uh, the battle. Uh, we are a people who are called upon to stand firm. So he tells us, first off, to gird ourselves about with truth. The first thing that happened for a soldier was he took up his, uh, the robes or the skirt that, that hung down and he would tuck it in his belt so that he would be unencumbered for action. We must be ready. We must have our uh, loins gird about, as they said in the, uh, in the old KJV English. It is vitally important that an army be ready for battle at any time. The Hessians lost on December 26th because they were not expecting a fight. And Sun Tzu wrote in The Art of War, attack him where he is unprepared, appear where you are not expected. And the devil has always used that particular uh, bit of strategy. He comes at us where we least expect him to attack, and he generally goes out after the areas where we are least prepared and most vulnerable. Occasionally, he will make a feint and pretend that he is attacking us in one area when he comes at our real weak spot. So we must have on also the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, This righteousness is not our righteousness. It would be ineffective. It must be Christ's righteousness, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we need also, before we can even put on that breastplate, we need to know our enemy. We need to know what we are dealing with. In verse 12, he tells us, uh, like a, a general addressing his troops, to, uh, to understand who it is that we are wrestling against. We are fighting against them hand to hand, or as they used to say in the ancient world, beard to beard. If you know the enemy and know yourself, there is no need to fear the result of a hundred battles. That's also Sun Tzu. He's not scripture, but he's right there. If we know the enemy, we will be better prepared to face him. We wrestle with an enemy. We, uh, we, we stare him down beard to beard. And he is called here by uh, Paul, daimonia. These are demons, the, the fallen angels who are now subject to Satan, their prince. They are actively engaged in warfare against us. They are archai, they are princes, so they are high in rank. We read in Daniel about the, the prince of Persia, the, the uh, demon who had charge of that particular area. They are also invested with authority. They, uh, they have reference, uh, those terms that are used, the authority and so on, have reference to the way that they are rulers over particular areas, the power that they have in those areas, and the way that they are formidable in that particular domain. Understand you are dealing with enemies that you cannot take on yourself. That's the point. Spiritually, if you attempt to go up against them in your own power, you will fail. One of the things that I have seen 
Uh, and I came into the Christian faith from the occult. You did not have to uh, convince me at any point that there were demons and demonic forces and darkness in this world. I had seen it. One of the things that I tried desperately, especially as we were ramping up in uh, 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005 in the War on Terror, was there were many men who were preparing to deploy to very evil places, such as Afghanistan. And they knew, these guys knew, that they needed to have their, their armor and their weapons ready. They needed to have their battle rattle all lined out, and uh, they needed to know how to use it. But many of these men, and I would speak to them, and I would say, I know you're prepared physically to engage the enemy. Are you prepared spiritually to engage the enemy? And too often, men would go over without any spiritual armor. They would go over prepared only to fight a material enemy. I had men who would come back from deployments and would say, you have no idea how oppressively evil and dark these places are. How you you just get this sense that there's there's wickedness uh, about. And I I said, brother, I I, I know. I warned you about this. That there would be spiritual enemies that you would be facing as well as physical ones. And in many cases, the spiritual enemies that they faced were even more oppressive and even more dangerous than the physical ones that they faced. I I think, uh, I I hesitate to enter into this, but uh, I I think we would be foolish if we didn't realize that that's a large part of the the huge suicide rate that we see amongst our troops. They were not spiritually ready for what they encountered. They simply went over with the material training that was necessary to confront a material enemy, but not the spiritual enemies that they would be facing. Now, you have such formidable enemies, and the conflict is inevitable. Therefore, you must arm yourself, and you must remain armed. There is no taking off the armor, so to speak. You must always have it on because you don't know when the assault is going to come against you. You need to be ready to to stand your ground and to fight wherever you are because we live in this present evil age. You live in an evil day. Do I need to convince you of that? I I mean, just go online for a little while. We're in, uh, you know, we were joking uh, earlier about the Hallmark liturgical calendar, but we now have a secular religion with its own liturgical calendar. Trans Visibility Day, Pride Month, and so on. We have, you know, these, these places where we're supposed to stop and genuflect and go through all the motions. We live in an evil day, brothers and sisters, and we will not be able to withstand that evil unless we are wearing his armor. That is the armor that the Lord gives us. So we uh, talked about the importance of girding the loins and having uh, the girdle of truth about our our midriff. Uh, This is the, the truth that sustains us, our belief in the word of God. It isn't the word of God objectively. It is our understanding of it. It is our worldview, so to speak, based upon that word of God. Now, so many Christians do not have confidence in the word of God. Even if they know it, they they don't depend upon it. They immediately fall back upon themselves. And so many professing Christians lose the battle before they even enter into it because they make it to the battlefield, but they're unconvinced of the truth of the word of God. I even saw this in denominations that professed to believe the Bible, but yet were willing to compromise all over the place, especially on sexual issues and so on, issues of who can preach, issues of how we should order the church, issues of whether or not we should conduct church discipline and so on. They were ready to negotiate with their enemies or even surrender before they even got to the battle. There was this spirit, terrible spirit of compromise. 
those of you who have, have seen the, um, uh, the Scottish mythological flick um, Braveheart will remember that uh, there's this point where they reach the battle and immediately the Scots lords advance towards the English lords. And what are they they're there to do? They're there to compromise. How many, uh, how many compromises can we make? Now, I, Braveheart is not exactly historically accurate, but that actually happened a lot, believe it or not, in medieval warfare. The lords would come saying, well, you know, it doesn't really profit me to get into a fight, to lose men, to lose weapons, to lose armor, perhaps to lose my own life. Instead, if I can make a deal where I get, uh, you know, a new, new territory opened up to me, a uh, castle's given to me, uh, what does it matter if ultimately the nation loses? And I think too many Christians these days go into the battle thinking, well, if we compromise here and there for our own safety, but give up some sort of major point, then I, I guess I'm, I've done pretty well. But that's not what we're called to do, brothers and sisters. You're called to fight. Charles uh, Hodge wrote this. He said, let not anyone imagine that he is prepared to withstand the assaults of the powers of darkness if his mind is stored with his own theories or with the speculations of other men. Nothing but the truth of God clearly understood and cordially embraced will enable him to keep his feet for a moment before these celestial potentates. Reason, tradition, speculative conviction, dead orthodoxy are a girdle of spider webs. They give way at the first onset. Truth alone, as abiding in the mind, in the form of divine knowledge, can give strength and confidence even in the ordinary conflicts of the Christian life, much more in any really evil day. So we need that, that, that girdle or that belt of truth about our waist. We also need the breastplate of righteousness. This is the armor that covered the, the body, the, the back, and the, uh, the front. It was actually two parts. It was a shell. You would put it on, and then you would, uh, you would cinch it up. So you were armored front and rear. But what is this righteousness? Well, as I've said before when I was introducing the breastplate for the first time, uh, the, this is the righteousness of God by faith, the righteousness which is given to us as a gift. It is an infinitely perfect righteousness. It is not our righteousness. That's the important thing. It's the righteousness of Christ, his obedience, his sufferings, his satisfying the demands of the divine law. If you try to go into battle in your own righteousness, as many uh, a, a heretic has done, you will fall eventually. The righteousness of Christ is a sure defense against all the assaults that will come against you, both from outside and inside, from the flesh. Uh, you, as a sinner, are not going to be able to proclaim your own righteousness while you're under assault. You need the righteousness of Christ. Only that will stand up. Only that will cause you to be armored against the assaults of the devil. And remember, your armor, every part of it is of God's making. So if you are tempted to think it's my own moral good, my own moral righteousness, my something this or that, and it's not something that you've received from God, then it's not part of the armor. It's not a true part of the armor. Now, strangely enough, we have this mention of, of shoes, uh, the things that uh, we put on our feet. But really, no fully armed soldier can do much without shoes. Not, not having proper footwear has been the demise of many an army. It was uh, seeking shoes, for instance, that led Lee's army to Gettysburg. 
Uh, they were looking to, to raid the Union supplies they thought were in that particular town, and most of all, they needed shoes. Theirs were non-existent or had worn out on the long march. Uh, you need that preparation of the gospel of peace or you're not going to be able to move. The gospel secures our peace with God. What does that mean? It means that it's a feeling of well, well-being, of contentment, of knowledge, of assurance, of that inner peace. We may not be happy all the time. The Christian faith is not supposed to make us absolutely happy, even though in glory we will be happy. It is designed to make us holy on this side of, uh, of uh, glory, and it is designed, obviously, to be something that gives us assurance, that knowledge that we are saved, that knowledge of where we are going. That will keep you standing in the evil day. It will give you that, I don't really care what happens to me. That's what motivated the martyrs in so many ages past. It's what motivates the Chinese to continue on in, the, in worshiping the Lord, no matter how the government comes at them. If you know where you're going, if you have assurance of salvation, then you need not fear man. What can man do to me, you'll say? He can put me to death, maybe, but he can't steal my joy. He can't steal my contentment. He can't steal my salvation. He can't steal the eternal life that the Lord Jesus has given me. So if you're standing on that foundation, you'll stand firm. But if you doubt, if you, you don't have that assurance, you don't have the peace of the gospel honestly reigning within you, you may be tempted to compromise. As many martyrs who weren't absolutely certain uh, that they were going to, to heaven when they died, when push came to shove, they, they gave in. That's always been the case. It, uh, if we have our, our assurance well in hand, then we will be able to move with speed and alacrity, a good old word. Um, verse 16 talks about, of course, the shield of faith. It was about the size of a door, believe it or not. Uh, it was four feet long by two and a half broad, and it completely covered the body. And obviously, in battle, it was designed to absorb the darts, the arrows, the sling stones, the, even the fiery uh, darts and javelins that the enemy would fire at the, uh, the people or throw at them. Uh, you could use these shields, these oversized shields, to form what they called the testudo, the turtle, which was, uh, they used that often in siege warfare, so that uh, you had uh, your shields over your heads and in front of you, and you could move up close to the walls. It's one of the reasons the uh, Romans were so very good at breaching cities that uh, other armies couldn't take. You, if you have your shield, will be able to quench the darts of the enemy. Now, a lot has been, and you may even have heard this. I, I doubt there are many people here who have not heard at least one sermon in which the shield of faith, in the idea of quenching the darts of the enemy, uh, that they would dip it in water until it was waterlogged and soaked, and therefore any dart that stuck in it would immediately go out. Unfortunately, historians have pointed out that if you waterlog a giant wooden shield, it becomes so heavy you can't, you know, you can barely carry it, much less put it over your head. The the idea being that the outer leather covering was uh, nearly inflammable and therefore would not go up in uh, smoke. But the darts that are being spoken of here, obviously, the flaming arrows, are the most dangerous things. These are the things that, for instance, will enkindle our passions, those temptations that the devil flings our way. Uh, he'll send to us something. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, at work, you will be offered a promotion. You'll be offered uh, an exceedingly large boost in your salary, but 
it comes at the cost of having to work on a Sunday. This, believe it or not, is a fiery dart fired at you by the evil one. And too many people will say, I will take that particular promotion. They're inflamed by the idea of receiving more money. And they'll take a job that is not absolutely necessary. They're not working in the military. They're not working for national defense. They're not fighting fires. They're not stopping crime and so on. They'll just take that because it advances them. Or uh, the devil will send somebody to tempt us. And sexually, for instance. That is another one of those flaming arrows. What do we need in that moment? Not confidence in our own ability to withstand these things, but rather at that moment in time, we need faith in Christ as the object of our faith, as our deliverer, as the Son of God and Savior of man, the thing that is most important to us. You see, you remember Joseph was tempted terribly uh, by Potiphar's wife, day in, day out. What enabled him to resist? In some senses, it would have made sense for him to give in. He was a slave in her household, after all. And he knew he could get into big trouble, but he kept resisting. Why? Because he knew that to give in would have been not just immoral and letting down Potiphar, who had put his trust in him, but a sin against his God, the God who had delivered him, the God who had been watching over him, the God in whom he believed. It is only if we have that abiding faith that we'll be able to withstand those temptations and run from them when we need to. The final part of the armor is, of course, the helmet of salvation. That is uh, the thing that allows us to hold up our head with confidence and to give us joy in the fact that we are saved, uh, that we've been redeemed, that we're translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's own Son. And it is because we have that knowledge that we're saved, that we're members of the body of Christ, that we're partakers of salvation, that we know who we are and we know we can stand because God is with us in that evil day. And we can be more than conquerors because of him who has loved us. But wars, as I said, aren't won simply by being on the defense all the time. We have to go on the offense. Now, up to this point, every single item in the armor that he's spoken of has been defensive. Now he tells us about our offensive weaponry. And it may disappoint people that there's only one item that's mentioned. We do not have the javelins of sarcasm, for instance, given to us by God. Neither do we have the arrows of legal action put into our armory. What are we given? We are given one thing. It is the sword of the spirit, which is what? It's the Bible. This is the sword the spirit gives and has given to his people. It is not merely the threatenings of God against his enemies. It is, of course, the promises that pierce, that convict, that also lead us to turn to the Lord. It is the wisdom of God. It is also his self-evidencing light. It is that which pierced my heart and caused me to change. Wielded by a Christian on the radio who had never met me, who will never meet me in most likelihood, and yet he used the spirit to subdue me and to bring me into the kingdom. And as long as the church depends upon that weapon, the sword of the spirit, she will conquer but if she throws it away, as, as she so often has, she becomes defenseless. It is only the word of God that has that effectual power to save and to change people and to change hearts and therefore to change nations. And if we discard the scripture, if we blunt the edge as well, if we try to make it into the butter knife of the spirit 
And, and there are many men who are actually wielding butter knives instead of the, the sharp two-edged sword, then it will be ineffective. It will not do the job. But there's something that we need to do with the sword of the Spirit, and that is we need to learn to use it. We need to be in God's word if we hope to use God's word. David said, you remember, when Saul gave him armor, he was about to go up against uh, Goliath. He said that he could not use it. He put the armor on him. He gave him his own sword. And he said, this is useless to me because I haven't tested it. What he meant by that is I haven't trained with it. I'll go go toddling out there, you know, and he'll kill me in a second. Completely useless. You, I could, you, you could give me the best sword in, on the planet. You could hand me a, a, a Hattori Hamzo katana, you know, of, of incredible sharpness, and then send me out into battle, and I'd be dead in a few seconds. Because I have no idea how to use it. I have never studied kendo. I don't know how to use a katana, and so on. I would be completely ineffective, because I have not been trained to fight with them. I find that many Christians, they believe that simply if they wave the Bible about or have it in their house or something like that, that that will do the job. But it doesn't. You have to get it inside of you. You have to train with it every day. You have to think of it as a martial art in the best sense, a spiritual martial art. It must be the case that you are going through your exercises on a regular basis. And then and only then will you be ready to use the spirit sword that has been put in your hand. But above all, you need to remember that you are part of an army. You are not fighting individually. We fight shield to shield. We advance together. And therefore, we keep in communication with our high command via prayer. And we pray for one another. If we are to be victorious, we must be praying for one another. Paul knew that it would be foolishness for him to go into all of these dangerous places unless he had the saints praying for him. I said before, I know, I feel it in my bones when people have been praying for me. I really do. Sometimes it's the only thing that empowers me. And when I don't pray myself and I attempt to do battle, it's been many a case, I, I, I actually did it recently. I, I leapt to my feet, not expecting to leap to my feet, at the General Synod, not having prayed, and I went into battle, and it was appalling. I am, uh, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm just this side of autistic in terms of my introversion, okay? Um, and so standing and speaking to uh, a people when I'm not prepared is a hideous experience, not only for me to experience, but for other people to experience. So it did not go well, and I didn't go in the power of the Lord. I had not prayed. I had not prepared. We need to pray. We need to prepare. We need to be listening to the voice of God in his word and communicating to him in every day. Let me leave you with this uh, instruction about the importance of prayer. These are words that... uh, have struck me many a time on this particular subject. This is Charles Hodge. He says, The conflict of which the apostle has been speaking is not merely a single combat between the individual Christian and Satan, but also a war between the people of God and the powers of darkness. No soldier entering battle prays for himself alone, but for all his fellow soldiers also. They form one army, and the success of one is the success of all. In like manner, Christians are united as one army and therefore have a common cause, and each must pray for all. Let me ask you, in closing, are you doing that? Are you praying for yourself? Are you praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you think of yourself as one united body, one army standing together? You should. If you're in Christ, that's who you are. 
Remember to continue to pray continually for your brothers and sisters and for your own success. Let's go before the Lord now. God, our Father, we pray that you would remind us that we need the armor that only you can provide and that the weapons of carnal warfare are useless in the spiritual domain. I pray, O Lord, that you would help us, therefore, to take up those weapons, to take up that armor and that sword, and to use them in not just the defense of your kingdom, but in advancing it. Lord, remind me that I was once captive to the devil to do his will, but you sent your forces to free me from his dominion. I pray, Lord, that we would be thinking that way as well, that we have souls to free. We have people who are in a terrible position, but we have been given the weapons that are needed to free them. Help us then, O Lord, to take them up and to use them in the battle. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. 